Good morning, everybody. My name is Randy, one of the elders here at Doxa. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have gathered in uh, this gym, that you've turned it into your house. We thank you for your presence here. We thank you for the fellowship of your Holy Spirit and the fellowship with each other. We thank you for the word that we've heard read over us. Now, Lord, we ask that you would take that word that we've heard, and you would take that spirit, your spirit, that we have begun to experience in this place, and that you would drive your word deep into our hearts. Lord, that you would meet each person here where they are. Lord, that those who are in need of new life would find new life today. That those who are broken and hurting in need of encouragement would find encouragement in you. That those who are wandering from the path would hear your loving call and your power and grace to pull them back to yourself. Lord, I pray that all of us would hear you speak to us uniquely and specially. And Lord, that your holy presence would continue to dwell powerfully here and work for your glory and for our joy as we look at your word. God, help me in my weakness to proclaim your word. As in Christ, let me pray. Amen. Uh, I just want to give a, a quick announcement before we uh, move on. And this really ties into the, the subject of a sermon, which you'll see um, a couple of pastors, a handful of pastors, including Dale and I, have been meeting for a couple of years praying for renewal and revival in our churches and along the Grand Strand. And it's been a really cool thing to be a part of. And upon hearing what's happening in Kentucky and some other places, the Lord is moving, uh, we just felt it was time to call our congregations to come together and to join us. And so this Thursday night at 6 p.m. at Church of the Resurrection, that's on Highway 17 Bypass in the Surfside area, uh, we're going to be gathering with no other purpose, no agenda, no, no one church is hosting it, no program except... Uh, we might worship some, and we're going to pray and ask the Lord to come and move in our churches and along the Grand Strand and the way that he is in Wilmore, Kentucky, and some other places. So I really hope that you'll come and join. Uh, I know that's my community group night, and I'm hoping my community group will, I haven't asked my leaders yet, I'm hoping that we'll all join in. Yeah, I think that we're all head, thumbs up on that. I just got the, the okay on that. that. We're all going to join in and pray together, so I hope you'll come and join as well. A lot of you may have heard about what's going on at... Asbury University in Wilmore, Kentucky. I've had conversations with a number of you about what's going on there. Uh, two Wednesdays ago, at a normal chapel service, uh, they, began, they began there in Wilmore, Kentucky to experience an outpouring of God's Spirit. Uh, some students stayed behind at the end of chapel, and then more and more students gathered. And since then, thousands of people have come from, I think now all 50 states, multiple campuses have come there and to see what the Lord is doing in that place. Uh, Dale and I have uh, friends, good friends, trusted friends, who made a road trip up there this week and said that they were blown away. That they actually, they, what, was, what it was really like, we saw them the day after, they were really wrecked. They were wrecked by the presence of God and seeing him move in a way where it was no one person or even group of people group of people that were getting headlines for them being amazing preachers and amazing ministers is simply the fact that God showed up and is showing up and is changing people's lives. The cool thing about it is that it's a, a history of things that have happened at Asbury before. Multiple times God has poured out his spirit on that university. The most famous time was in 1970. And the, the Jesus movement, which is the last sort of 
national widespread revival or awakening that we've seen in our country. The Jesus movement was just starting out across the country. But God, in February of 1970, he began to pour out at a chapel service much like he did this month. And the students then went out. Students came in and those students went out and it began to spread the fire of revival in college campuses and churches all across the country. And it became this huge movement. What we're praying for is we're praying that that would be a similar thing that we're seeing today. It's gotten attention on social media and news media. And here's what's really been encouraging to me as a pastor, as a leader, someone who's been praying for, as many of you are, for God to move in a powerful way, is that it's captured and really kind of unlocks the imagination and intention of Christians that I've talked to. Christians that normally would be kind of skeptical about these kind of things have said, you know what? I don't know what's going on there, but I hope it's true, and I want to be a part of that. It's unlocked a a hunger that's inside of people for something more, a a deep hunger, especially among young people, for something more. I think that we're in a similar moment. I pray that we're in a similar moment as as we were in in the Jesus movement as God poured out his spirit upon Asbury. It's not a hunger for religion. It's not a hunger for a long service. It's a hunger for God himself. And I believe that we're poised for that moment. I I think that we have here today, I think we have a a hungry church. We have a people who have been together gathering, praying for an outpouring, an awakening of God's spirit in our midst and along the Grand Strand. The handful of pastors that Dale and I have been a part of, that's, I can't tell you how difficult it is to get pastors together to be caring about something other than their church agenda or their name. And they've been gathering together simply saying, God, would you move? We don't care how you do it, where you do it, whose name is on it, what it looks like. We don't want to put our expectations upon it. We're just saying we want you to come and move in power. And I think that you... I think that you are hungry and thirsty for God. Did you know that's an essential characterization of a believer? It's someone who's not satisfied, but is hungry. As the deer pants after the water brooks, so my soul longs after thee, O God. Oh my God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. You hear the wording of the the psalmist? My soul thirsts for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. We think about that last week. As a dry and weary land where there is no water, I long after you. The truth is that all people are hungry for more. Whether you're a believer or not, we live in a restless, hungry age. It's just that the lie comes to both unbelievers and to believers that the hunger and the thirst that you have at the core of your being can be satisfied somewhere else, anywhere else except in God. That's the belief. That's the lie. Whether you're a believer here today or you're not a believer here today, that's the lie that comes to you. It's a lie that's designed in the command center of hell. To to urge you and lead you to find satisfaction in anything other than him. And yet your soul cries out for him. But in our text today, what Paul is telling us, he's telling us what his mindset is as a believer. 
He shows us the mindset actually of every Christian. This is a, and the, the commentators across the board agree with this. This isn't some super apostle saying this is how he lives his life. He is laying out for us. He says this is the mindset of the Christian. This is the mindset of the believer, someone who has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and longs in a focused, hungry way for more of him. Did you hear what he said there in that passage? But whatever gain I have, anything I've ever had going for me, my reputation, my income, my career, my earning potential, my family, my girlfriend, anything that I have going for me, I have counted it, including my Christian resume, the things I've done for God, the things I've learned for God, everything that has, I could count as gain for me, I count as loss for the surpassing greatness of what? Of having a larger house, of moving to a sunnier place, of having a more promising career, of giving a hotter wife, a better looking husband, better obedient children. Is that what I I have considered the loss of all things for? No, for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Just knowing him. Knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. And for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, look, I have put this to the test. I have lost everything that made me Paul before. In fact, so much so that my name was Saul before and now it's Paul. I have suffered the loss of all things. I have put it to the test and I tell you, it is worth knowing Christ to lose everything and count them as rubbish. That word rubbish is a pretty unpolite word. It means dung or put it in what word that you say to people on Highway 501 when they pull out in front of you. I count them as that for their surpassing greatness. That I may gain Christ, he says. And then in verse 12, not that I've already obtained, not that I've already been made perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Let's key in on that verse. Look at what he says. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect. Now, many of you here, many of us here are aware, painfully aware of our shortcomings. Maybe you're a Christian. And you sitting here today, in fact, you've been dealing with it as we've been singing and praying and reading. The thoughts coming into your head, just reminding you, telling you, you are sinful. You keep telling the Lord you're going to conquer this particular sin and these particular sins. You're not going to get angry. You're not going to be lustful. You keep telling you in the back of your head, you are sinful and you continually, continually are sinful. We're so aware of our failings. Reminder this morning as you're sitting there, the, the, the voice in the back of your head saying, you have weak character. You can't seem to follow God for more than a couple of days straight without turning around and failing. You are sinful. You are continually sinful. You have weak character. Or you say, you know what? I am, I am a Christian. I carry that label. But deep, real parts of me wonder, is this actually true? Is this word actually true? Is God actually real? Is Jesus actually real? Because everything around me is telling me this world is more real than he is. We are so aware of what we could be. 
or what we actually should be. But you know what happens to many Christians? Some of you, we become crippled by it. You become crippled by your sin, by your continual sin, by your weak character, by your failings. You become crippled by it. And here's what Paul says. He says, I am not perfect. I have not obtained it. I have not arrived. But whenever we are so focused on what we are not, what we have not done, what we could be and should be, that beco- you know what happens? That becomes our focus and we become our focus. But Paul says, this is my mindset. I'm not focused so much. Yes, I am failing. I have failed. I have sinned. And those are not okay. But he says this, I am more focused on the prize, on the goal, than I am even on my own failing. I'm focused on Christ more than I am on my own sin. I haven't arrived. I'm nowhere near perfect. But I'm not going to let that stop me. I am pressing on so that I may know Christ. Because here's what he's saying. He says, I have a goal in mind. Did you hear that in the passage? Brothers, I don't consider that I have made it my own. But one thing. If you're keeping notes, write that down. One thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. You hear what I just said? Forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal, toward the prize of the upward, continually upward call of God and Jesus Christ. Do you you see the great thing that moved the Apostle Paul? While he was preaching the gospel, while he was planting churches through shipwrecks and prison and stoning and persecution and slander. You know what was driving him? Is it so that he could plant another church or put a big name, the apostle Paul great or make this big resume of things that he'd done for Christ? He says, no, everything that I do, I count it as lost. It's behind me. I'm pressing on. Was it so that I could preach the gospel again or do more things? No, I'm going to do all these things with the thing that I'm pressing towards. The prize, the true prize is that I might know him. That I might know Jesus Christ, my Lord. Knowing Jesus deeper and more fully, that was his overflowing, overriding passion. And he said, that is worth losing everything and suffering whatever I have to suffer in order that I may gain Christ. He's saying there's a goal of greater things. He's saying I'm going beyond where I have been. Whether I have failed, whether I have great successes, I'm forgetting it and pushing it behind me so that I can press forward for the surpassing greatness of the prize, the goal of knowing Jesus Christ greater and more deeper, no matter what it brings me, whether it's suffering, whether it's death, whether it's pain, whether I lose my reputation, I lose my my possessions, whether I lose my career, it is all lost. It's all rubbish for the surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus Christ and growing in my knowledge of him. Do you know why that was his overriding passion? Because he had tasted Jesus. He had experienced him and he wanted more. His desire had been inflamed. And what I want for you this morning, if nothing else happens for you this morning, I want to see the Holy Spirit fan that dangerous flame of desire within you. It's a dangerous flame. Because if you really truly desire Christ above all things, if you truly desire to know him and be in fellowship with him and grow in him, it will cost you. 
This is a dangerous desire. You will put aside all of the things that seem to be incredibly important to you before. But you will, it's a dangerous desire that will cause you to move things out of the way because you say, this one thing. These other things, okay, but this one thing is the one thing I've got to achieve. It's the one prize I've got to meet. It's the one goal of my life, to know him more and more deeply. And he uses this phrasing. He says, I press on to make it my own. That word press on, the Greek word that's translated there, press on, it's it's a powerful word. In the Greek, it's actually a violent word. Here's what that wording means when he says, I press on. He means to apprehend or to chase or to hunt or to press or to seize. To apprehend, to chase, to hunt, to press, to seize. In fact, it's such a violent word. Here's what it means. In verse 6 of Philippians 3, whenever he was giving his background of all that he had done before he, came, before he knew Christ, he says this, as to zeal a persecutor of the church. That's the same, exact same word. The violent way that Paul persecuted the Christians that claimed Christ before he was a believer, leading them to captivity, leading them to death, going after them with a ferocious violence, he says, that is the way I now pursue Christ. He had persecuted the church. He had violently apprehended, seized, hunted, pressed in on those Christians. And he says, that's my mindset now too. As a believer, I'm locked in with a hungry, violent focus to know Christ more and more. So he uses this wordplay here. He says, I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Or if you're the NIV version, it says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. See that wordplay? I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now that Greek word where, where he says, took hold, Christ Jesus took hold of me or made me his own, it means this. It means to be seized, to be taken, to be overcome, to be caught, or to be found. Do you see what he's doing? You see what he's saying? He says, I have been apprehended, pursued, chased, hunted down, pressed in upon, seized by, imposed upon by Jesus. That's what Jesus does to you, by the way. He imposes himself upon you. He doesn't sit in the wings and say, I hope that you like me and you'll come and include me to be a somewhat important part of your life. He is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And when you meet Jesus Christ, he claims the throne of the universe, including the throne of your life. And that includes everything that you own, everything that you do. Everything that you say, everything that you think. He claims lordship and kingship upon it all, and he doesn't do it in a passive way. He imposes himself upon you in a beautiful, loving way, but still 
He opposes himself upon you and me. And he says, I have been apprehended by, seized by, chased down by, caught by, pressed in upon, seized by, pressed in upon, imposed upon by Jesus. So because of that, my, the sole focus of my life is to apprehend and pursue and to hunt and to seize fellowship with or to know Jesus, to obey his calls upon my life, even and especially to the point of death. And like I mentioned before, all the commentators agree upon this. This isn't the super apostle saying, this is my super way of looking at life. They say, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is the mindset of a believer. In fact, he tells it in the passage, verses 15 and 16. Let those of us who are mature or perfected or growing, let those who who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God revealed that also to you. Only let us hold true to that which we have attained. In other words, he's saying to be a Christian means to be that you have been imposed upon or chased or seized or apprehended by Jesus. He has captured your heart and your mind. He has remade you. Your former thoughts and your affections have been changed at the very core. He has imposed himself upon you. He has entered into your life and claimed his rightful place. And he has claimed his place as king and Lord. And you have willingly and gladly ceded the throne of your life to him. You have recognized his priority above all other things. Now, whenever that happened to you, it may have seemed natural to you or it may have surprised you and those around you. But either way, the implications of Jesus being king and Lord of our life means that that, that it should continually, the implications of that should continually surprise me and it should continually surprise you. Because it's not my wherewithal that's changing me and molding me to his image. It's his wherewithal that's changing me and molding me into his image. It's not me that's wanting to turn away from these things that seem so precious, these sins and patterns and habits that seem so precious to me in the past. It's him coming in and saying, I will no longer allow that. You're going to go this way. It should surprise me and it should surprise you. The changes that occur in our lives. You aren't the same person. If you're a Christian, you aren't the same person as you were were before he chased you down. Hopefully, if you're a Christian, you're not the same person as you were last year. But hear what Paul is saying here. Because Christ Jesus apprehended me, because he has made me his own, because he has seized and grasped me, therefore I have thrown everything overboard. My possessions, nothing. My achievements, I don't care. My reputation, it doesn't matter. My accolades, I've forgotten them. My old way of thinking, I've turned away from them. But whatever gain I had, I consider loss for the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ. A Christian must have a long-term focus, is what he's saying. They have an eternity focus. I'm not focused on my reputation here and now or my possessions here and now. Because my reputation and my possessions are forever locked up in Christ in eternity with him. 
And that's what I'm working towards. I'm not going to let temporary things, I'm not going to let poor substitutes stand in the way. To the Christian, the final redemption of all things in Christ, by Jesus and in Jesus, reframes how we think and how we act. It reframes our finances, it reframes our time, it reframes our careers, it reframes our families, our recreation, it reframes our hopes and our dreams and our goals. But this is also what Paul is saying. He's saying, I have eternal focus. But he's saying, it's not just an eternal focus. Because as a Christian, you have been apprehended, chased down. You have, been, you have tasted of Christ Jesus. And you've experienced in a measure what it is to be known by God and to know him. And he's saying a Christian is one who has tasted fellowship with God and Christ. They've known to some extent the sweetness and the power of his presence and and communion with their creator. And he says, because of that, because of that, they long for and focus on the final redemption of heaven and earth. But they also throw their whole selves in to experiencing that fellowship with him now. And he says, this is the great focus of the Christian. To be willing to experience the loss of all things. Be willing to experience the loss of all things if I get to know Christ. Christians, the centuries over, have testified over and over again it is worth it. It's a story of the martyr who was being led to be burned. And he was the first of a number of others. And they were afraid. And they told him, As the fires consume you, if you find that he's enough, raise a finger to let us know. As the fires engulfed him, you know what he did? Two fingers. He's more than enough. And if someone who is being lit by the flames, can you imagine what a horrendous death that is? If someone who is being lit by the flames can say, he is more than enough, then why wouldn't we bake on that and push all that we own and all that we have to the center and say, all that I have is yours only if I can know you. Only if I can know you more. Only if I can have greater, deeper fellowship with you. Only if I can see more and more of your glory, even today, and being confident that even if the flames consume me, I will say, oh, it was more than worth it. On the other side, And if that's not your great goal, if you aren't pressing on for that above everything else, then here's what Paul is saying. Either you're not a Christian, either you're not a believer, or you're a believer who has forgotten their first love. If you don't feel that deep, burning, yearning in your soul to know Christ above everything else, to be willing to experience suffering or loss, it means that there is, if there is no yearning inside you, then you can't, can, can you really say, can you really say that you've been apprehended by Christ? If there is no yearning in your heart, Can you say that you've tasted fellowship with the almighty, holy God through his son as your mediator? You can't say that. 
But are you aware that you are being pursued? That you are being chased down by Jesus? Maybe he's chasing you down by that friend or family member that keeps inviting you to church. Or maybe he's chasing you down by the constant stream of troubles that seem to hail you. Every time you think you've gotten everything squared away, something else happens. Something else falls apart. It's just enough to always keep you off kilter, to always keep you unsettled. Or perhaps you have in, in your soul a gnawing unsettledness, a dissatisfaction, a longing for more, and you try to scratch that itch with things and experiences and people Recreation, career, but it's still there. If not for that itch, you might have just settled into life and just hit cruise control, but you can't. Perhaps Jesus is chasing you down in some more obvious ways. You've had a, a health scare, a breakdown, you're at the end of your rope, and you finally are here today looking for a lifeline. That's Jesus chasing you down too. He is pressing in upon you. It has the love of Christ coming after you. He loves you too much to leave you in the rebellious state that you're in. He loves you too much to let you be trapped in sin and darkness. He is running and coming after you, but are you resisting him? What is it within you that's causing you to continue to run? Is it doubt? Are you wrestling with the the fact, wondering if, if God is really real? Are you wondering, is Jesus, was he really, is he really the, the son of God? Are the contents of the Bible truly true and trustworthy? Or maybe you struggle with, will this be real for you? If you truly bow your knee to him, if you truly follow that, will you find him to be as real and true as the people around you? But there's a fear inside you that if you do, you'll find out nothing or no one is there. I mean, if you truly give yourself to Christ, what you're wondering is, will he be there to catch you? Will you experience him the way the others around you say they have? Or maybe it's your desire to really, just to rule yourself. You feel yourself shrinking back or fighting back from the idea of someone else ruling you. Instinctively, instinctively, you know that if you bow to Jesus, he will, he will take the throne of your life. He will impose himself upon you because he says, I will be king or I will be nothing. And you haven't been able to stand the thought of that. Did you know that's exactly where Paul had been? Paul, who writes these amazing words, that's where he had been. He had been a Jesus hater. He had hated Jesus and all that he stood for. And he hated all that followed him. And he resisted with all of his might against Jesus being king, against the Christian message, the gospel, that God through Christ and his sacrifice justifies sinners, makes sinners right before God. He only by faith in Christ, that insulted him. He wanted no part of that. That is, until on a road to Damascus, Jesus, you know what he did? He apprehended him. He chased him down. He knocked him down and he revealed himself to Paul. He literally knocked him down. 
The light of his glory blinded him and Paul, the great, disciplined, brilliant man, was brought down to the dirt, brought blind and helpless. And he heard this voice saying, Saul, Saul. See, his, his name was even changed later. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Why are you pressing against me? And Paul asked, who are you, Lord? You hear that? Even his response, there's doubt there. He has to acknowledge that whoever has knocked him down is actually the Lord, but he doesn't yet want to acknowledge that it's Jesus. Who are you, Lord? Because he knows that if the Lord that knocked him down in his glory is Jesus, who he has been persecuting, then his whole life is about to change. His whole life has to be rearranged. His whole thinking about everything has to be confessed to be wrong. Can you imagine how humbling that would be? But you know what? That humility was about to bring him joy. And what was the answer back to him? He said, I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. But rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. He says, I am Jesus I am the Lord of heaven and earth. All glory and power and honor and praise are mine. That's who I am. And here's my instruction, my command to you. Go and you'll be told what to do. And Paul, this brilliant man, has now been deeply affected. He's been knocked down, pressed upon. And he went led by his hand to a place that God appointed He didn't eat or drink for three days. His life had changed. He knew it. He just didn't know how much yet, but he went on. Do you know why? He pressed on. Do you know why? Because he began to to pursue violently the one that he had persecuted violently. Do you know why? Because he had tasted fellowship with Jesus. He had experienced the glory of God. And he realized that's what I was made for. He was thrilled. Even though it meant everything else that he had done or pursued was now rubbish, he was thrilled for the surpassing, lasting greatness of knowing Jesus. Now, my question to you is, will you drop all your pretenses, all your doubts, and your self-rule today? And submit yourself to that, Jesus. And Christian, what of your first love? What rubbish, what dumb? What insert other word into that, into that, that blank? What rubbish, what dung have you accepted as good instead of knowing him? What sin, what doubt, what self-will? Is it a grudge? A belief that you're owed something? A picture of an ideal life that is more precious to you than knowing Christ and growing in him? Are they standing in the way of you pressing on and pressing into Jesus? Are they choking out your deepest and truest desire? Are they suffocating your first love? Well, they'll do that. All while selling you a lie. Contentment is found here. Happiness is found here. Satisfaction is found here. And again, they are all lies designed in the command center of hell in order to bring you to the point where you shipwreck your soul and your faith. Are you pressing ahead 
pushing ahead, leaning ahead to know Christ? Are you chasing, hunting down, pursuing, thrusting anything and everything else aside other than to know him? Is he is what is of lasting, surpassing worth to you? Paul is saying there's an expulsive power in knowing Christ that displaces all your previous affections if you're a believer. That includes sin, but it also includes a million good things and all the previous things that you've done for God. It says it's all rubbish. It's all dung compared to knowing him and to know him more. Is that what your heart longs for? If that's what your heart longs for today, believer, then we must have the mindset that Paul had when we say we're going to go beyond I consider everything behind me as rubbish. I'm going to go beyond. I'm going to press on. I'm going to press on beyond anything else I've ever done in my devotion, in ministry, in my mission. I'm going to be poured out like a drink offering. Even that's that's what it means. I'm going to be radical in my obedience to Jesus. If we desire greater things, if we are praying for greater things, it must mean that we must have a different response a greater response, we must go beyond anything else that we've gone before. We must press on. We must go beyond. Do you know why? Do you know why we press on and go beyond all that we've done before? Because our God can do exceedingly beyond all that we ask or think. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly or exceedingly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Have you been chased down but not yet apprehended by Christ? Bow to him as Lord today. Christian. Are you letting rubbish distract you from the prize of knowing Jesus more? Throw it off today. Are you hungry and thirsty for more and deeper fellowship with him? Call out to him today. Is he calling you to follow him in service and possible suffering? Surrender today. I press on for the prize. Of the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Church, that is a prayer and that is an action that he 100% of the time answers. And he 100% of the time honors. I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and celebrate communion. Maybe this morning, if you're a believer in Christ, wherever you call church home, whatever continent you call home, We open the table to you today. The blood of Christ shed for your sins. The body of Christ broken for you. Maybe you need to come forward this morning as you receive it. Say, I'm coming forward in humble submission, receiving your broken body and blood. Saying, I need and desire more of you. Hear my prayer. Maybe before you come forward, you need to do some business with the Lord wherever you are. Don't let that bother you. Don't let what people around you think. Why aren't they going forward? What's going on with them? 
I consider it all rubbish for this sort of past, to know Christ Jesus, my Lord. And if you're, you're here this morning and you're not yet a believer, you haven't yet surrendered, come to me. Find somebody beside you and say, would you pray for me? I want to know more about becoming a Christian. We'd be happy to do that. Angels in heaven will rejoice. And I know you would as well. I'm going to pray and they're going to come forward and I invite you to come forward. From the outside, receive the, the bread and the juice and then come back to your table, and, uh, your seat, and then Tad will come and lead us in communion. Lord Christ, every single one of us here, you've been chasing down. You've been hunting us down. You've been coming after us. Lord, I pray that if anyone here who has not yet been apprehended by you, today would be the day. And Lord, I pray for those who have been apprehended by you, if we have let rubbish, other things, distractions, the lie that contentment and, and happiness is found in anything other than you. Or we just accepted not going beyond, not pressing in, but kind of coasting what I pray you revive our, our first love. The Holy Spirit, only you know how to come and minister to hearts. I pray that you would take my clumsy effort, you would take your word, and you would do a miracle in people who are here today. God, make us into a people who collectively say we're running after you and we're counting all things as loss that we may know him. In the name of Christ, amen.